Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain the leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years' experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today I want to talk about six rapid multiplication drivers. I'm not sure about rapid multiplication. I'd like to think of rapid multiplication. We've always shot for rapid multiplication and hope that you do as well. But just plain multiplication drivers. We're not going to have multiplication if we don't have these things involved in our church, in the ministry, in the strategies that we're pulling off, the theology, the ecclesiology, the whole deal uh, is going to take these six things one way or another. And so the first one is a visionary sponsor. You know, Peter Drucker said that uh, nowhere is anything being done. I think he's talking about the corporate world without there being a monomaniac with a mission. Now, this is a guy that discipled Rick Warren. And when he starts to talk in these kind of terms, you better pay attention. And so, you know, you you got um, McDonald's, you got a Ray Kroc, you got Apple, you got a Steve Jobs, you got Microsoft, you got um, Bill Gates, you got Exponential, you got Todd Wilson. There has to be somebody who's driving this thing, and that somebody needs to be you if your church is going to end up being a church that multiplies itself. The second thing just ties right into it, and that's the backing of a healthy church. You know, it's pretty hard to think of an unhealthy church planting churches, although sometimes that's happened because the church splits. Sometimes that's happened because a pastor comes in and there's a church that's not so healthy, but they see it and they see the opportunity that's there and they decide that they are going to go ahead and, and get behind the thing. Sometimes all they can do is throw money at a project but So we do see that happen, but in terms of rapid multiplication, we're going to do this thing over and we're going to do it over and over again. Well, then we're going to have to have a healthy church behind us, and it's going to have to be a church that has vision for the world and vision for the kingdom of God, not just vision for ourselves. You know, I have a really wonderful friend named Sundar Tapa who lives in Nepal, and the guy's a businessman. He, he, he came up as a a little kid in a Hindu family that was born on the wrong day and superstition said that he actually stole the life of some relative who died the same day that he was born. And so his family basically not only rejected him, he never ate food at the table. He took scraps off the floor that they threw on the floor. He never wore clothing until he was five years old. At that point in his life, his older brother, who was a Christian, which made him an outcast from the family, came to visit the family. Everybody, he said, he remembered them getting nervous and, you know, not knowing what to think. And suddenly that brother scooped him up and started running and just kidnapped him from the rest of the family. Raised him as a Christian. Five years later, his brother put him in an orphanage and he felt abandoned. He was hurt. He was crushed. Two weeks later, his brother was dead. He had been killed. Persecution was coming his way. He smelled it. That's why he put his brother in the orphanage. Fast forward nine years, and Sundar is a, a young man and working in a hotel, and he he gets involved with this missionary to Nepal from Korea. And the guy asks him, would you like to come and be a houseboy at my house? Or here's him talking about the Lord. And so he takes the job there. Eventually, the guy sends him to, to South Korea to attend a, a Bible college while he's there. 
Uh, he meets this one young woman who's very suspicious of the other Nepalis that are there. And and uh, it turns out all the Nepalis, there's like seven of them, and they're all suspicious of each other. And then there was a crisis back home, and so they got together and did have a prayer meeting. At the prayer meeting, they found out that the missionary who sent them there was kind of using them and their presence to raise money from other people and kind of living like a king back in Nepal. It wasn't a very pretty picture. Anyhow, they became friends. He ended up marrying this young woman that almost, you know, seemed to hate him. And uh, But he became discouraged. He dropped out of school. And he went to work, and he saved a lot of money, comes back to Nepal several years later, and becomes a land developer. And the last time I talked with him, which is a couple of years back, he had developed 22 neighborhoods. Now, each neighborhood would be like 40, 50 houses. And they're big houses. In fact, the house that he builds for himself when he starts the neighborhood is going to turn into a hotel when it's done. But he also planted a church. So he's Aquila. He's the businessman who plants a church on the side. And here we are in a Hindu country where there is severe persecution against the church. And that church now is almost a thousand people. But they didn't stop there. They got to multiplying. And so they their, their, their church is backing other people. They're helping people learn to, to be beekeepers, to be goat herds, um, and buy a, a herd of goats. They're, they're helping people. They have these goofy little tractors that have just one wheel in front of them, but you can attach a little trailer to it, and it becomes a taxi cab or a little pickup truck or whatever. And, and so they'll help a, a person buy. They loan them the money. They never give them the money. They loan them the money. They have to pay it back. But the whole deal is you're going to do this, you're going to plant a church. And they started 167 churches all across the face of Nepal. Now, if you think about this guy, and it's different because it's a Hindu country and there's persecution, I know all that. But if you think about it, if he had tried to build the biggest church he could possibly build in Kathmandu, it might be 2,000 people and right in the gun sights of those people who would like to persecute Christians. But by doing what they're doing, they're into villages, they're into the mountains, they're into you know places where... Um, the gospel would not go otherwise. And so if if we'll decide that our church is going to be the healthy church that funds and sponsors and raises people, we can become a movement of church planting. The third element here is microchurch as a startup tool. You know, if you would begin to think of your home groups in your church, not as home groups, but as little churches. And by that, I mean, uh, this may rattle some people, but let those people do the baptisms. Let them do the baby dedications. Let them make the hospital visits. Let them do the funerals. Train the leaders. And and help people begin to identify your church as a collection of churches. And uh, you as the leader of this collection of churches. And these people as pastors. And then it's going to change the whole function. For one, your life's going to get a lot easier because you're going to have less of that kind of stuff to do. And more time to make disciples and do the things that you'd like to do. But as as you get into this, the the... The microchurch within a church becomes a training bed for a leader who can make disciples and replicate themselves. In our situation, if if you're you know called on to lead a microchurch, in other words, somebody else raises you up as a leader, they disciple you, and they leave, go start a new one, and then you do the same thing, and you do it three different times. We see you over five or six, seven years, start three microchurches within our church we start to believe that maybe you have what it takes to go plant a church. If you believe that, you feel called, we're not going to manipulate you into this thing, but if you feel called, then we're going to back you, and we're going to do whatever it takes 
to help you get out there and succeed. And we're going to see the kingdom of God go forward. This is especially crucial when we start looking at people who I would call bridge people. The people who are in our church because they like our church, they feel safe in our church, but they come from another culture. You know, I was recently in Helsinki, Finland, and I was speaking to 1,500 charismatic Lutherans, and there's one black girl in the whole place. And so kind of in front of everybody, I went and interviewed her. I found her name is Elizabeth. She's from Namibia in southern Africa. It's a part that used to be part of South Africa. And during the days of apartheid, when they were trying to get the world off their case, they gave away big whole countries, but they actually just gave away poverty. And so she's from one of those poverty-stricken nations. And so I asked her, you know, do you, do you have uh, relatives from Namibia that live in this country, this very white country of Finland? And she says, oh, yes. And I go, do you have friends from Namibia besides your relatives? Yes, I do. Do you have friends from other African nations who live in Helsinki? Yes, I do. So here she is. She's a contact to this incredible world that's right under the nose of all these white people. There's these black folks living amongst them, and they're really not aware of them. She's the bridge person. She feels safe. You know, a black person being in a room with 1,500 white people isn't very easy to do, but she feels safe there. Her friends, her neighbors, they probably won't feel safe there, but they'll feel safe with her. So if these people can build her up and equip her and then strategically place her, she could plant a church while remaining in the church that she's a part of. And so it's this kind of thinking that's going to get us to the place where uh, we want to go and doing the things that we want to do. We need to begin to think of an army of freelance pastors. And by that, I mean people who we would say are intentionally bivocational. In other words, you're freelance. You have a career and you start a church on the side. That makes you a freelancer. You know, almost 40% of the people in the United States that have a job today, 2019, 2020, 40% of the people who have a job in the United States have what we would call a side hustle. They're doing something as a freelancer on the side. Well, if we could kind of flip it around to where you know, we think of bivocational as I went to school, I, I got a school bill, and now I'm stuck. I'm, I don't have the spiritual gifts to pastor a big church. And so I'm, I'm left driving a school bus and hoping I can get out of there and hoping one day I can have a full-time job in the church. If we could flip that around and go, no, no, what you need is a career path. You need some place that's going to provide fringe benefits, vacation, health insurance, retirement, all those things for your family. And then you pastor the church on the side. If, if we could just accomplish that, we would help a lot of people who are struggling in poverty right now. But the other thing is there's all these bridge people in our church who could go out and do stuff, and, and they're not even thinking of it because we're not thinking of it. And so, you know, I was in a deal about two weeks ago where I spoke to, I guess, about 400 people on a video, and I, I w it was a live audience of 30-some people, and we were talking about just this very issue. And this very well-dressed African-American man in the back, I mean, when I say well-dressed, like a $4,000 business suit, I mean, this guy was, I mean, it was obvious that he had bucks. He starts crying, actually kind of sobbing, blubbering, and goes, you just gave me permission to be who I am. I'm a pastor, but my denomination has rejected me. And so I probed him a little bit and asked some questions, and, and then I got him up and put him in front of the camera and kind of interviewed him. It turned out that uh, he said, I'm a, I am have a mid-six-figure salary. That's a lot of money, folks. My wife is a medical doctor. That's a lot of money, too. We started a church. There's 50 people going to our church. But our denomination 
put the gun to my head and wants me to quit my job. And when I refused to quit my job to basically embrace poverty, my denomination told me I'm not a real pastor and those aren't real, not a real church, and they cut us off. And then the guy went on and the story got worse. He said, I went to two different church planting agencies, the kind of groups that we all know, that are are loving, wonderful people, that are willing to give you money and bless you and help you do the thing that God put in your heart. And I went to them and and told them what we're doing. and, and, And basically all I asked for was fellowship. And they came back and they were generous. They wanted to give me money. But both of them, when I said I didn't need the money because I had a job, said, then you really can't be a part of who we are. That's a tragedy, folks. That's a tragedy. There's an army of freelance pastors sitting in our congregations. Now, just stop and think. There's people that lead home groups or people that you know do important things inside of your church that are capable of pastoring a microchurch. Now, not that all of them should. For sure, most of them shouldn't. But there's one or two that you could think of right now that if you spent some time with them, maybe you got them to listen to this podcast and talked about it a little bit, you put a little vision in their heart, you could begin to reach people maybe some distance away from where your church is. You know, I have a friend who started a church, and within one year he'd started two others in in sort of remote mountain villages, remote to him, 30 miles away, in Idaho, where in the winter the snow is going to keep them from coming to church. So in the first year of his church, he, he... the church grew to about 125 people, but there's two micro churches of about 30 people in two different villages. If we begin to just think different, we could raise up an army of freelance pastors and take advantage of, of America's freelance explosion. You know, when I talk about this freelance thing, you need to understand that the number of people who are, are doing a side hustle, the freelancers in America, are equal a total that, get this, it's more than the population of the smallest 25 states in the United States have a freelance role. This is becoming normative in our society, and it's something that younger people coming up are just going to take for granted. We need to adjust ourselves so that we're engaging what's going on out there. Oh, by the way, more people are freelancers today than the number of people, according to Fast Company magazine, that that uh, voted for either Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan, a couple of our most popular presidents. Uh, there are more people than elected a president of the United States are functioning as freelancers, and we're just missing the boat because these people are available. Our people are available to us. They're thinking this way. All they're needing is for us to get the lid off and decide that we're going to do whatever it takes. Personal peace, that's the, the fifth of these things. You know, in, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells us to, Go someplace, new territory, uh, attempt to make friends. If somebody receives you, stay with them, stick on them, and let them become the person of peace. And through them, you reach out to their friends and, and what have you. And my wife and I moved to San Diego some time ago. And uh, when we did, we, um, of course, bought a house. And we met the realtor, and we became friends. And kind of guy fell in love with my wife and my daughter and so we started going to breakfast together, and now we go to lunch once a month. And, you know, he's become the person of peace in our life. We're just, we, we pray with him. Uh, he he has some sort of a knowledge of Jesus, but it's not real personal. Uh, we got into an argument about the Bible. He's told me all about Jesus. And I go, that's not the Jesus in the New Testament. And finally, I, I don't know why I even said it, kind of in, exas- in exasperation. I go, have you ever read the New Testament? He goes, no, I, I went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic university. 
but actually I've never read the New Testament. And, you know, I'm not sure I even totally believe that because I think somewhere along the lines, we would have had to read some of it, but he for sure never read it devotionally. He never got intimate with Jesus in the New Testament. And so our next talk, which is going to be actually a week from today, uh, we're going to talk about, did you read it? What, who's the Jesus that you found in there? I, I've been involved with this person like for two and a half years. And at one point I was frustrated because there, there are people in his community that I was hoping to start a microchurch with once I moved here. And it didn't happen. It didn't work out the way that I thought it was going to. And I was angry at the Lord. I was complaining to Jesus. And I felt like the Lord said, you don't even love that guy. If you don't love him, how can you love them? And so I decided that I need to just stick on this person of peace and work through that person to get to the other people that God has out there for me to touch. I was recently at a a concert in uh, I went to LA to hear Ringo Starr and uh, I went in and bought my hot dogs and my wife got a little hamburger and you know $33 later I come out and sit down and find my wife at a park bench with some other people and I'm kind of a natural introvert I can talk in front of an audience and if I don't know you I really kind of don't know what to say I like to avoid small talk and if I can't duck it and my defense is just a talk your face off, you know, tell you stories and whatever, because I can kind of keep you at a distance. I feel safe. And so I sit down and, 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 and it's like, oh my gosh, I got to talk to this guy. And he starts talking to me right away, which is worse. And um, as, as we get into it, I, he asked me what I do. And so I told him, well, I, I train pastors to, you know, make disciples and multiply churches. Well, what's that mean? And so I told him, and then he informs me very, very loudly, people are against religion, you know. And it's like, wow, the door slammed right there. And so I went back at it for another run. And I said, you know, some of what I do is in Europe. And people have been against religion for a long time there. And and what I found is that, that when you have no religion of any kind, there's a spiritual void in your life. And so people are looking for help. And they're looking in some pretty weird places. But one of the things that we're finding is while they've rejected what they see as church, they're not rejecting friendship. And he just softened right up. It was just amazing. Well, he changed the subject. We we now started talking about Europe and World War II. He reads about World War II. I read about World War II. I've been to Normandy, the invasion beaches, a couple of times. He's never been there. He wants to know all about them. And within 20 minutes, I had a friend. Now, the guy lives 150 miles away from where I live. So we're not going to probably have a real follow-up on that friendship. We didn't exchange phone numbers, anything. But I realized from my little pedestal of, of, of isolation that comes from being an introvert, because sometimes as an introvert, you, you sit up on your little pedestal and kind of almost look down on everybody else. Uh, I don't want to get involved with these people. I, I, I realize if I will crawl down off that place and make friends with people, that I can discover the person of peace and that it's an avenue to work into their lives with a goal of we're going to start something with them and their friends rather than a goal of I'm going to bring you to my church. So this is about serving them. It's not about serving me. It's about serving Jesus. It's not about serving my kingdom. And So moving on from there, the last thing is what I call the secret sauce of Hope Chapel. And that's just simply perseverance. The, the, the key to rapid multiplication of the church is just keep trying. You know, just keep doing it. And, you know, once in a while you're going to fail, but most often you're going to succeed. And just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And, uh, you know, the Bible says, and, and I remember it from the Living Proverbs, that 
Steady plotting brings prosperity. Hasty speculation brings destruction. You know, as I look at that scripture and I think of plotting in terms of making disciples and multiplying churches, that's how the church has gone forward. It, it, you know, I spent a lot of time in third world countries. What we're talking about here is exactly what happens everywhere, except for Japan, United States, and Western Europe. Everywhere. They make disciples. They multiply churches. They fly under the radar. They don't have much money, but they're getting the job done. Here we are, and we've taken the route, I think, of hasty speculation. We're going to build it big. We're going to build it fancy. We're going to gussy it up with, with colored lights and smoke machines and hot music. We're going to do all these things, and we're failing. The church here is imploding numerically. Statistically, we're, we're falling way behind the eight ball. We're losing the culture. Steady plotting brings prosperity. Perseverance wins the day. Well, thanks for taking time to be with us. God bless. Hope I catch you again next week. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.